Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to be here with Henrik Evrell. Welcome to my podcast, Henrik. Well, thank you. And uh, for the sake of good sound today, we are actually sitting in a cozy meditation room at Norsjön Foundation in uh, Stockholm. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's uh, the largest social impact hub in this part of Europe. And this makes more sense than one might think, as the two of us met for the first time in maybe 15 years during a meditation course yeah. a couple of months ago. That's true, really. Yes, it's full circle. <laughs> but Henrik, what do you think is the best way actually to introduce you? Because I... I found uh, a couple of lines in your LinkedIn profile that I, I really liked. And uh, maybe I could read it for, for you. Sure. <laughs> it says, restless creative, aspiring entrepreneur, and a nice person. Right now, I create useful mobile services, I write books for children, and I blow my whistle for peace in Congo. And I also like to talk about ideas with anyone who has them. I thought that was a really a good, <laughs> good summary of, of yeah. uh, what, what I see in you. Well, I, I couldn't have said it better now, I think. I mean, a LinkedIn intro, I guess, is a bit self-marketing. But yeah, that's pretty much who I am, a restless creative. Let's kick off with, with uh, your latest company, Soon. Oh, yeah. So um, Soon was, from the beginning, a fun like a experiment on the side of my day job as I guess most things start out for most people, that had to do with helping people keep track of all the stuff they want to do next. So I realized that basically every conversation that I had with my friends and conversations that everyone has with their friends includes, you know, books you want to read, the movie I saw last night, this new cool restaurant. So it's this enormous just pot of inspiration that is all around us. But there's no way to just store that information or to keep it and to just manage it for the time we actually want to see that film or want to go to that restaurant. So we realized that people had their own systems for this. Everyone was jotting down things in their notes, apps, or emailing themselves or post-its on the computer screen, different types of solutions. So we decided to, why, why don't we create a tool to help people do this and to just integrate with different services to pull in information like trailers or opening hours or maps to connect it to your friends so you can see what they want to do next and maybe do stuff together features to plan trips to other cities and what you want to do there and do some algorithmic work on what's trending at the moment and try to give some intelligent advice and basically just help people to experience more and better things in their everyday lives media has called it an everyday bucket list which i think is a pretty good term the thing is that this is not a new behavior. People yeah. have always wanted to, you know, keep track of the tips they get from friends or things they read about in the media or pass by in the street. Mm. We just give them a really good tool to do that. And in the process, they tell us what they want to do next. And that information can be used by us to connect these needs or wants, actually, with different companies that can provide them. For example, if you say that, if you want to put the book in your list that you was uh, advised to read by your friend, then we could let an online bookstore know that and they could send you a message say, hey, 
cool that you added this book. It's awesome. If you order it now by soon, you could uh, get free shipping. And that's marketing, but it's also just giving people what they said that they actually want. So um, we're quite early stage with this thing yet, but I think it has enormous potential. And I also think, which I guess is part of the context in this conversation, that it has a bigger purpose to fill because there is so much stuff around us that we could do. But helping people actually do things or more of the things that they will like in the end is, I think it's, it's something that creates a lot of value for people. So it's, it's fun to see if it's going to work. Yeah, I think people are in general very frustrated that they don't have time enough mm. to do everything they, they really want to do. That's FOMO. Not... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the FOMO term. And where are you right now in this uh, phase of building the company? What's your aim, actually? Good question. It's also a bigger question that I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to my approach to, to life and, and like business and career as a whole. I never really had any goals. I, I, I don't know, really. I decided to bet on this, quit my day job, dedicate my full time or as much as you know, full time is different. It's difficult to, to define if you do a lot of different things at the same time, but to dedicate as much time as I can, raise a bit of money, recruit a few people, put up an office and try to turn this thing in what my vision about this product is. And then the job is to make as many people know about this as possible. My belief is that this is something that has a broad and global relevance. A lot of people would use it if they know it existed. So right now my job is much on the technology side, but the most interesting job later is to, how do I get this in the hands of people and listen to their feedback and try to make this into something that people can have a lot of value out of on a daily basis. So I'd say we're still quite early stage and right now we're focusing on just building the product to become better and more stable and have more interesting features. And that's something that I, I think is insanely fun. How many people are using it now? Do you know? Somewhere just over 100,000. So it's not a big thing. But and it's spread out. Yeah, I think our biggest user base is in the US, mm. not in any particular city, but I think the use case is mm. more clear for people who live in big cities where there's a lot of new restaurants popping up, a lot of cultural events happening, a lot of mm. inspiration all around you. So I'd say our biggest user bases are in, in like the, the metropolitan, like the big cities of the world. Mm. And I'd guess the biggest cluster would be in New York and Stockholm and London. Mm. Tell me about your passion and what dreams do you have? Well, I think my passion and dreams are two quite different things. Also, it's about my kind of lack of goals in life. But if I start with a passion, I, I guess it's always been just forming ideas together with other people. Like this, this moment where you just get this spark of inspiration and you just can't keep it to yourself. So you pick up your phone or, you know, hit someone on Messenger or just call someone and say, hey, have you thought about this? Should we just get together and, and sit down and talk about it? And uh, that, that's, that's my biggest passion in life. And it could be a business idea, but it could as well be a thought about, you know, a common interest like music for me, in my case, or uh, just 
an idea about what's going on in society or about politics or anything. But the, you know, the stage of going from just not knowing anything, not having thought about something, to getting this spark and just working it with somebody else, that, that's, that's my main passion in life. Every initiative I've ever taken, most of them has happened within, say, past five, six years, has always started with something like that, with just an idea that I couldn't keep from just talking to people about. And we might come back to this later, but I think an important learning as well when it comes to ideas is that there's two types of people, if you generalize, those who think that ideas are best kept to themselves and you should be protected and patented and safeguard so nobody else like gets to do it. But my experience is the complete opposite, that talking to people about ideas just make them so much bigger and so much wider and, and more thought through. And if I hadn't, for example, about soon, if I hadn't, hadn't spent two months just sharing this vague idea with people, I would never have done it. Because that discussion, first of all, it gave me the insight that this is something that people actually want and need. But also it, it came to, I mean, I came up with so many good follow-up ideas and, and so many sort of details that would go into this product and the solution that I would have never thought about myself without talking to people. So I think it's, it's both like an instant pleasure for me as a creative person, but it's also something that has helped me greatly to refine what I do. So that's absolutely my passion. You don't like to think about goals. What is the reason for that? Well, I don't know. I've, I've just, my life so far has just taken me places without me planning for them. And I think that has told me that, okay, I can have ideas about where I want to be in 10 years. But I'm not going to be there in 10 years because things are going to happen that I have no idea about. It's going to take me somewhere else. And that's going to be fantastic too because, you know, I'm going to just jump on a new train that leads me somewhere. But I admire people who go goes as well, like people who are really specific about what they do. Sports people, musicians, doctors, different types of specialists that has to have this, you know, very clearly defined idea about, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to reach the top of the world in my field or, or do something like that. But it's just not me. Mm. I'm always going to be a generalist and I'm always going to be a beginner because it's this first spark that gives me my kicks. And if I have a goal that is too high or too far away, I might not see these sparks. I might not catch them when they come. So I think that goals suit some people perfectly, but they don't suit me that well. What turning points in your life have actually influenced you the most so far? That's such an interesting question. I, yeah, you, you sent me that question beforehand and it made me think a lot. And the first answer I thought about was my first real breakup with a girlfriend. But I guess I want to give a different answer that is sort of the same. It was the first time I got fired. That was a big turning point because I was probably 24 years old. I've just quit university. I've landed a job that I felt a bit underqualified for. It was a high status thing. I felt that I was kind of, you know, there on false premises. I was a bit fake in it. I was not worthy of the title or the job. And I tried really hard to fit in, to do something that I didn't like, but it was a prestigious thing. And, you know, coming straight from university, I had no idea what I was good at, no idea what I liked. And university even made that worse. It, it kind of 
put me in a pipeline together with everybody else. And it's sort of hierarchy of what you were supposed to do in your career. So when I got fired from this job, it was a trainee program at a, like a big company. I felt like a complete failure. I felt like I missed the chance of a lifetime and, and I was never going to rebound from it. And I walked away feeling like, like a total loser. But with a, like just a few weeks after, or even a few months after, it made me realize that, shit, this was the best thing that ever happened to me. I wasn't supposed to do this job. I didn't like it. I wasn't, pretty, I wasn't good at it. I didn't like the culture. I didn't fit in at all. I would have fired me if I was my boss. <laughs> um, and it put me on a new track where I would just start asking myself better questions, like what would I actually like to do? What is my real passions? And looking at, at it from a much longer perspective, looking at it from today, it accomplished something even greater for me. And that's the fact that it made me less afraid of failing. Because before that, I, had, I never had a real failure in my life. I had a bunch of small ones, but I was so scared of the idea of failing. But having failed miserably once made me feel like, well, that was not so, it was not so terrible. It actually left me in a better position than before I did it. And I think that has helped me to take greater chance and not be as afraid as I was before. Mm -hmm. It has given me a confidence that whatever I do, if it flies or, or crashes, I will still have learned something from it and it will put me in a better position than I was before. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a turning point. But speaking about uh, you know, universities and education and, and putting yourself through actually a system somehow, squeezing you into a system, into a structure as such, what should we do in order to actually see those, let's say, talents and passions earlier so that even the education system, the universities and so on, can use it in a better way to make you a better person, a better professional person? I think that's one of the most important questions for society at the moment, because like the, the whole school and education system is probably one of the biggest fields facing a complete revolution, but it's just so difficult because it's global and so intertwined between different countries and different measurement systems. So it's just this beast to get moving. But I think that the first thing, and this is a realization from my own time in school, that most of my own friends went to school without having a clear idea why they went there. So one of the first things I would do is to give people an alternative to an academic education, to, for example, support people with entrepreneurial ambitions after high school. So they don't feel that, hey, I, I, you know, I should study because that's what society expects of me. That's what the system is rigged for. I should be an academic. But so many people shouldn't be academics. They would be far better off trying their own wings from the start instead of wasting four years in an education with an unclear purpose. So that's the first thing I would do. And Secondly, I think educations need to, I mean, the purpose is to give people knowledge and skills, but they should also add a purpose to that, and that is to help people figure out what they want to do. And in my experience, having gone through a, an engineering education, quite broad one, but I think this goes for economics or law or anything else as well, is to spend more time of actually trying to show different opportunities to people. Like this is something 
that you could do. This is something you can do. And in the field of business, for example, just exposing students to different sectors. And maybe you should have the third or fourth year in business school just diving deep into you know, telecommunications, raw materials, automotive, retail, finance, and you know, have them learning about what is the history of this market? How has it grown into what it is today? What is the principles of making money? What does sustainability mean in this field? And what will it have to become in the future in order to sustain and to flourish? And in that sense, you would probably give people a much better feeling like, okay, my way of thinking or my interests, they suit this field really well. So after school, I might go into retail. I might apply for a job at H&M or at Walmart or at Amazon. And another person feel like, hey, my way of thinking works really well for finance. But instead, people are kind of molded into these predefined hierarchies of what is a good and what is a bad career. And everybody strives for the same thing, regardless of what their passions are. And I think that's a major problem for the world because you have a lot of people sitting in the wrong jobs. Well, there are lots of reports uh, that I've been reading recently that says that the average percentage of engaged people at work is around 20% uh, all over the world, wherever that is measurable. And in Sweden, where you would maybe guess it would be a little bit better, maybe, it's only 16%. So obviously, there's something that has gone wrong. And it's a huge problem for society. I mean, this is comparable with, you know, environmental problems, with, you know, all types of other societal problems you might have. Having people not being content or even inspired by the thing they spend eight to ten hours a day doing, that's a big problem for society. I mean, it will have parents coming home to their families, you know, with their heads hanging low instead of coming home with, with fresh energy. And if society or businesses or anyone can do anything to change this, it would be more valuable to society than most other things you could spend your time on. Really. And also the environment of going in and out of offices, environments. I mean, in some cases, some professions, you need an office, you need an office space maybe. But I guess we're going to see different kinds of setups and different kinds of corporations, even with people, you know, more cross-border, cross-minds as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this comes back to one of the other questions you sent me beforehand, which is, you know, what should leaders think about going forward? What, what would my advice be to leaders? And I think that dynamism of collaborating across borders of countries, but most importantly, across the borders of companies and sectors, is going to be one of the biggest change makers in business going forward. I mean, most businesses are rigged to compete with each other. You know, you think that their success is my failure. You know, it's, it's a given market. And if they grow on that market, it means that I will lose. But that's not how it works. There's so many cases proving that we can all win if we work together. I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been advising a lot of companies about finding who are your best friends. Who are, who are the other companies that this company could be good friends with? You might find them in your own industry. You might find them in other industries. You might find a synergy with someone. But go out and find them and try to figure out how can we create new experiences, new values together. 
And that will involve as well in the work life, you know, people not being locked into an office building, locked into a certain value proposition, but actually getting out there, talking to people with other backgrounds, with other businesses, with other goals, and try to see how could we join forces. And uh, there's just so much value to be extracted from that. But a traditional, uh, you know, business sector like the finance industry, for example, people who might listen to this and work in the finance sector, what advice would you give to them? What change should they work for? Oh, the finance industry in specific, I think, is super interesting because it's very much one of the core infrastructures of society and business as a whole that is just completely, I'd say, failed to do what they should do. And this is also a big problem for society that the banking world is attracting or sucking up you know, the most talented people from the best schools that are now sitting and working with not creating value for private people and businesses, but rather manipulating a system for short-term gains. That's not what the smartest minds on earth should do. I mean, finance could be so much smarter. Finance has worked really carefully to accomplish a few things that have served them really well. One of the things is to, to basically take the power of knowledge and pull it as far away from consumers and normal people as possible and put it as far in to the bank as possible and push risk back towards the people. And I think one of the things that banks should do is try to actually collaborate with their customers and be educational. And for example, Warren Buffett, probably the most successful investor in the history of investments, has a saying that I would never invest in something that I don't understand. Yet everyone that we know are investing in things that they don't understand, things that are packaged as a strange hedge fund or something that is packaged as a structured product that I don't understand underlying dynamics of. But if they instead would help me to see, hey, you know, these are some macro factors that are moving right now. The global middle class is growing. These countries are growing their economies. The need for this is increasing. You could invest in this company and this company that would actually benefit from these macro challenges then I can guarantee that the people that are sitting on the other side of the table would feel empowered and in the end much more loyal to the bank and feel that the bank has helped them not just to grow their pot of money, but also helped them to feel a deep, meaningful connection to their investments. No, I, I totally agree. But the funny thing is that we are in 2017 now and... Uh, there are not many initiatives, at least visible, that is working in this direction. So how come this uh, sector is not waking up and acting? Simple answer, they're doing very well. They're making a lot of money. And I think that it comes back to the fact that they can attract the smartest people. And just to give a reference, I saw a documentary some time ago about the sort of the, the constant struggle between the drug cartels of South America and the police trying to catch them. And the police said that, you know, we are sitting here with, you know, rubber boats, outdated telecommunications equipment, and we're trying to catch people with helicopters and the latest IT systems because the drug cartels always have much better resources and the police will always be 10 steps behind. And the same goes for regulators and banks. I mean, you can regulate banks as much as you want, but if they sit with the smartest minds on earth, 
they will always come up with a way to bypass the regulations and find loopholes and find new ways of manipulating the system. I, I might seem cynical, but if there's one industry I think would need a complete sort of redesign, or in this case, going back more to basics, doing what banks at some point in the beginning of their history was supposed to do, it would be an enormous societal value. So I think that's somewhere where I would absolutely like to make a big, a big impact in my career. That's something that I could feel proud of. I'm not doing it now, but it's definitely something that I would like to do. Well, maybe you can inspire them to do this. <laughs> yeah, because it's not going to come from top level. It's not going to come from governments dictating rules. It's going to come from mm. new types of companies, new types of players coming from a grassroots level, doing it in a different way and sweeping the rug under the feet of the big players, mm. as in any industry. So there's, I, I would say there are a bunch of those initiatives that just makes banking simpler and more oriented to help normal people. So it's still very early, but I, I see initiatives and I feel that it's something that, that is absolutely being tried at the moment. What long-term solutions do you see for business uh, or do you believe in for business actually? If you look at the things that, that concern every business, I think that, and this is of course a, a very sort of expected thing to say and it sounds quite cliche, but I mean recruitment and HR is the key to any successful business. And I think that a lot of businesses have the wrong attitude towards recruitment in the sense that they are recruiting reactively to fill short-term needs. Holy shit, we got a new assignment, we got to find somebody to deliver this. or we uh, we have a new customer or we need to open a new market, we need to find people right now. What I think that any business leader should do, and this is you know goes for any type of company, is to try to envision what company do we want to be in three years and define that vision by the organization. So if this is what we want to be, who needs to be on board? What is our team roster? Who is our linebacks, who is our defense, who is our, you know, sports metaphors, and then recruit towards that. You probably read the old good to great book. And I think, yeah. I mean, they served companies that have gone from being, you know, normal, successful companies to just outperforming their industries completely. And the first conclusion drawn from looking at what these companies had in common was first who, then what? Find the right people, then figure out what they should do together. And I think that is very much true to what I've learned uh, in my career so far, mostly by doing the opposite and seeing it fail. So, so try to envision what company you want to be in terms of who works in the company and recruit towards that. And also try to be very clear on the basic standards for who you're recruiting, the basic set of values, the basic set of sort of personality skills that goes beyond the skills that is needed for the specific task and make sure that everyone working for the company agrees that this is what we as a group has in common. I saw a job ad the other day for one of Stockholm's like most hyped restaurants and they were looking for a new chef and the job ad basically said that the only thing we require from you is that you're a nice person. All the rest <laughs> tend to solve itself and I think that's very much true.
I mean, they expect, yeah. of course, that everyone applying for the job is a, a talented chef. Mm. But being a nice person will make sure that all the other chefs and staff will perform better. If you assume all doors are open and all resources are available, what would you then innovate or change? Well, I already talked about banks, which is a thing that I would absolutely like to dig into. But looking closer to where I'm working at the moment, I mean, soon is very much about helping me as an individual or people as individuals to experience like more interesting, more fulfilling things in their everyday lives. But I'm thinking a lot about what would be the next level of that? How can I take that to a level that is, is bigger? And I always come back to the conclusion that if you can connect people based on their common interests and their, their want-to-dos and have that as a starting point for people meeting each other and forming new friendships and new alliances in the way that they haven't done before or wouldn't have done otherwise, I think that is something that I would be willing to spend a lot of my effort on, because that feels like a, a big deal. When I lived in China, I came across this social network called Daoban. And that was one of the biggest inspirations for what I'm doing now, because they started out as just sort of an online forum for reviews of music albums, films, and books, these three categories. And on this platform, anyone could go in and write a review of something they liked. And people could interact with that review and comment on it. And it became these big discussions. And you were upvoted or, and you had this sort of very dynamic conversation about culture. But in the end, what they learned is that the knowledge and the clusters formed on this platform based on people's common interests and common taste became a starting point for becoming a social network that also became a dating service. People who share taste in movies, you know that they will at least have something fun to talk about during the first date. Mm. And that is something that might be <laughs> a better starting point than, for example, Tinder that has to do, well, do I think this picture looks good or not? That's very shallow. In this case, you know, you have formed a deep relationship around the common interest. And if the two of them meet as friends or as a potential love affair, it has so much more depth than just a superficial swiping image right or left. And I think soon in the end could turn out to be something like that as well. If I've said I want to read a book and you said you want to read the same book and we get to know about it and we don't know each other, then maybe that is a reason for us to get together and talk about it. And a new friendship might have formed and new people who otherwise wouldn't have met all of a sudden meet. So I think that is something that I would like to innovate, a new starting point for forming friendships. That's great. But, uh, and also meeting in terms of meeting up physically with people, I think is really important. And that's already today, it's like an exclusive thing to really meet up mm. with somebody and take time and sit down and even, you know, meet more than 60 minutes. You know, everything is like slots of 30, 60, 90 <laughs> minutes, <laughs> you know. So uh, any any good reason to, to have also new people meet uh, each other and uh, talk about something they have in common I think is refreshing because when you look at a person from the outside, you don't know that person. It's really like a discovery trip yeah. uh, in itself. Are there any types of meetings with people that have made you change your perspective? I mean, all meetings with 
people that you know inspired people changed my perspective uh meeting you now <laughs> absolutely changing my perspective as well but if i would single something out it would be like a type of meeting that i've kind of lived with throughout my whole life which is meeting people in the handicap world one of my sisters has a very severe mental handicap that she was born with so i pretty much grew up with one foot in sort of the normal everyday world of an upper middle class suburb outside of Stockholm and another foot in the world of handicapped people that have completely different starting points for living their lives and that whole scene is just enormously inspiring because the dedication people are showing that are parents of these kids people who are employed to work with them as assistants or teachers or working in their care homes or whatever despite insanely low pay but they're driven by an inner passion of doing something important for other people who otherwise would be left alone and also the creativity of solutions not least technical solutions for helping people with different handicaps live good lives it's just so inspiring and it all comes from a starting point where i mean in, in most other fields you can generalize people into different segments or clusters based on what they like what they do their values and so forth in the handicap world no such generalization is possible everyone is completely unique so every solution if it's some type of aid to help them move around in their apartment or if it's in you know an aid to help them communicate or to uh, you know to eat food or basic needs has to be tailored to the single individual and i think this is a field where i mean there's enormous improvements to be made but already the amount of creativity and tinkering that is happening in this field is super inspiring because it's the most sort of i mean it's a buzzword in business in general to be you know individualization or to mm. you know cater or to to tailor things to fit personal needs in this world they have no choice and they really do mm. so i think that's also a field where i would really feel i would really have a lot of energy coming into something like that and and, and innovate in that space so we'll see if i do that at some point there are really uh, lots of great heroes in 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 these this world to to discover uh, and i'm also amazed by the fact that always you know nurses and people who work mm. in this kind of servicing care uh, systems are so poorly paid and how and why cannot that just be changed you know i, I i'm just amazed by that me too and i i I'm, i don't know if the solution is to privatize more or privatize less i'm completely clueless because it's you know in the old world where you had everything uh, in sweden at least run in in public settings it was the same and now when it's run privately to a large extent it's also the same it's just you know same problems just reoccurring mm. so it seems to be something that needs a revolution of some kind not just tuning the you know just not just fine tuning but actually doing something completely different so when did you feel most like a beginner yourself well I mean, one thing was, of course, quitting eight years of work in creative agencies. Although I'd started like companies myself, and I was entrepreneur in that space, but just quitting that comfortable, well-paying, 
I know how it works type environment and just focusing on creating my own product with all that that requires, which I was a complete beginner of. But even more so, I think it has been starting fresh in new countries. First, when I, when I moved to China to set up an office for my agency, it was in 2011, we decided that we want to have a company in China or an office in China because it felt like a good place to grow. But we had no idea how to do it. And I moved there without any clue of how to make it work. And just all of a sudden realizing that I'm sitting in a company that I've almost never been to before with a culture that I, even though I try, I still have a hard time understanding how it works and the, you know, the, the dynamics of it. And there, try to set up an, an operation or a company that, whose job is to advise other companies on how to make it in this market. I, I felt like a complete beginner and almost like a complete idiot at first. But then I spent a lot of time trying to find the right people to work with and recruiting local talent and little by little starting to adjust my own thinking more and try to build a team around me that could actually make this work. And the pleasure and the joy of getting our first assignments and delivering those things and just feeling like, hey, this, this is going to work, was such an enormous wow experience for me. And the same thing coming to Turkey and spending a year there and working. Although my, my boss at the time, who was the head of marketing for a big telecoms operator, had hired me to just be his right hand when setting up operations in this new company. So I knew him before, but still just coming into one of Turkey's biggest companies where virtually no one was a foreigner. I, was, I probably didn't meet any other foreigners during my whole year there in the company and try to figure out how to do my job and how to contribute with value in this brand new environment. Those things are very fostering and has absolutely also contributed to making me less scared of trying new things because it tends to work out in the end. It really does. If you would move back 10 or 15 years and give advice to yourself, what would it be? Well, 15 years ago, for example, I was just starting to study at university. And uh, well, I, I spoke a bit about that earlier in the interview, but I would definitely, you know, just take a step back and ask myself, what do I like doing? Because at that point, you are so vulnerable and so influenced by everybody else's opinion. You are really just trying to fit in. Most people are. Some people are strong and, and know themselves at that point as well. But at least in my world, most people didn't. And they were shaped by expectations from society, from their parents, from their friends, about what they're supposed to do in life. And if I would have given myself an advice back then, it's to just stand back and ask myself, where do I get my kicks? What is giving me pleasure in my everyday life? And the answer would have probably been something that is more in line with what I do now than what I studied. I'm an engineer by profession. I have spent four years studying math and physics and chemistry and, uh, you know, mechanics. And... I'm sort of glad I did because it's, you know, it's, it's, it helped me to understand more about the world around us from sort of a scientific point of view. But it also kept me from doing what I really like doing, which I found out later, 
is this kind of idea generating creative process together with other people and uh, of course you can do that as an engineer but that was not the part that I focused on becoming good at when I studied the part I focused on being good at was just passing the next exam and I didn't really know why so yeah that's that's I would ask myself much clearer what do I want to do mm. next what piece of advice would you give to people who are you know in between jobs or maybe just as you mentioned before going to study at the university and they don't really know they're not convinced about where to go and what to do a more general advice that has served me very well and that I got early on in my in my life was to find your your partners like who can you form a dynamic duo with or trio or you know whatever amount of people it is but find people that you feel comfortable and inspired working with and make sure they know that that you want to do stuff with them and form these like small little informal alliances with people and it could be as simple as just when that spark of inspiration for something come i pick up the phone and i call this person that i might not have spent that much time with but i have an idea that maybe the two of us would work well together I will try that by by sitting down for an hour and discussing this idea and see if spark starts flying. And over the years, I've just collected a bunch of these people. Not in a huge amount, but mm. five or six of them in completely different fields. They know different things. And I haven't started things together with all of them, but I'm pretty sure I will at some point. And some of them have popped up at a point where I needed to find you know, a new partner for doing this or that. And I needed to find a new designer for something or I needed to find a new partner in a project. It popped up. Wait, this is this is the time where we will do something together. So I think that that's my advice to anyone who wants to just get creative and start things. Find your creative partners and try to figure out who do I like spending time with? Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to spend a lot of time with this person if you start something together. Mm. And it takes a bit of time to know who you like. And it's better to know that beforehand, mm. before you start actually doing it. That's good advice. If we go back to companies in general, what do you think is the most important thing for all companies to focus on right now? Um, I mean, in very, very general terms, it's... I mean, the world of the world of business is changing so much into a place where owners, customers, employees, whatever people that have a stake in the company, they don't accept bullshit anymore. They don't accept anything less than a company at least trying to do the right thing. So I think if you're a leader of a company, you should realize that you don't just have a responsibility as a big power in society, but your whole business will depend on you actually trying to do this right thing and formulate it in a way that you can express to everyone who invests money in you, applies for a job, buys your product, to say that, hey, this is the thing that we're buying into. This is the context that I'm becoming a part of when I'm joining this company as one of those stakeholders. Because I think that in the past, I mean, the whole concept of CSR was something that it was kind of handled in a way that it was something on the side or on top of the company's 
real goals, the real business critical strategies of the company. But, and once again, this is of course a bit cliche to say, but from now on, it is the business strategy. You need to have a higher purpose of doing something good. Otherwise, you're screwed. Otherwise, nobody wants to invest money in you. Nobody's going to want to work for you or buy your products. Because there's always going to be someone else who scores higher on that parameter. And if you don't, you're going to be left behind. And still, there are so many companies that, well, maybe they have the insight, but they're not acting on it. And I, I'm, you know, thinking, why? How come? You know, how far should it go before that wake-up comes? Well, I think it's a transition period, and we're in the midst of it now. We're maybe in the, in the early stages. Some companies have paved the way of, of starting to do it, do the right thing from the beginning. And it's forcing others to follow. Uh, one of my favorite examples, and it's a company that's always been talked about in, this, in these uh, discussions, is Warby Parker, the glasses producer that just turned a completely dysfunctional industry upside down by making something that people usually paid 300 bucks for 99 bucks and selling it in a way that was just much smarter not spending money on physical stores or advertising, but actually spending money on providing a better product. And by doing that, also having money to invest in helping people who can't afford glasses at all to get it. Not by giving away glasses, but setting up operations in countries where people don't have 99 bucks to spend, but nine bucks to spend, and making sure that they have an offer there as well. There's a two sides of the equation. You help people to save money here, you help people save money there. And it's all based on just uprooting the fundamental dynamics of the industry and doing it in a smarter, more thought through and more humanistic way. And I think this is possible to do in any industry. Even if it's a big infrastructural industry, you can still do it. And also the big uh, companies, just because we're in Stockholm, I'm thinking about for companies like Ericsson, you know, mm. and so on. What is there any kind of piece of advice that we could give them if anybody's listening? Well, I, I think a big company needs to think like a startup. Big companies suffer, and I mean, I think it was Clayton Christensen who coined the term innovator's dilemma, that like disruptive innovations don't happen in big companies because big companies are afraid to disrupt themselves. They're afraid of what they call cannibalization of their currently successful business model. But if a company doesn't dare to question the current logic and the current reality they live in, they will never be the ones coming up with the next big thing. And somebody smaller, somebody with less to lose, somebody with nothing to cannibalize, will sweep the rug under their feet. And that's what happens to Ericsson, for example, right now. I mean, they're getting a lot of heat from Chinese competitors who are doing the same thing, but cheaper. But the big problem for Ericsson is that the whole next generation of potential business for them, which is moving from building the infrastructure of telecommunications to applying it in sector A, sector B, sector D. You know, how can you mobilize 
transportation? How can you mobilize mining? How can you mobilize education? All this application of Ericsson's core technology is being handled by somebody else. Because Ericsson doesn't have the corporate setup to manage many small accounts. If they would think of as a startup or as an incubator startup, they would see every one of these different verticals or sectors as a new horizon. And they would set up a task team to just start, you know, start from scratch. And how can we use these technologies to come up with whole new solutions and business models that are adapted to fit education, to fit mining, to fit transport? But in, instead, others are doing that. And I think similar problems could be found in most other big Swedish companies as well, that they are stuck in a business model and an organization that is geared towards the old world logics, whereas the new world logics is being handled by somebody else. And uh, the new world and the old world, as you said, logics, is that necessarily connected to the age of people? Uh, no, absolutely not. I think that magic happens when you sit people together, you know, with big age spans. And, you know, you, you combine the experience of a 60-year-old with the, the passion and, and, you know, dynamic thoughts of a 20-year-old and magic will happen. Mm. And I think that's, if you look at big problems in society right now, we talk a lot about discrimination. We talk about discrimination of women in the job market, discrimination of people with other ethnic backgrounds, etc. But I guess that the biggest discrimination happening right now, and the one that we talk the least about, is discrimination of people that are older. Discrimination of people who are not digital natives, people who are in their 50s and 60s. I mean, if, if you're in your 50s and 60s and you lose your job today, you will have a hard time finding a new one because there's this bias of companies hiring young people. And this is despite this group of, say, 50, 60-year-old people in the job market having an enormous amount of experience that combined with the youthfulness and energy of, of sort of a younger demographic, it will create magic, but people don't know how to set it up. And I think if you can manage to to help, not help because that sounds like, like uh, philanthropy, but if you can create organization models that can bring older and younger people together in value creation, that is not just a benefit for the company, but a benefit for society as a whole, because you would get rid of an enormous, uh, sort of an enormous discrimination problem that it today is, is uh, it's just really hurtful for people and society as a whole. But sometimes people are saying also that it has to do not only with, you know, digital native or not, but rather the fact that people who are experienced normally are more expensive for a company. So like they have a double reason to pick somebody who's a bit younger. So they are less expensive, more digital native, and implied into that is creative. Yeah, I mean, and that is something that maybe experienced people need to reconsider for themselves. Their expectations of salary and about and about climbing the ladder. I mean, in my parents' generation, career was about climbing a ladder. When you're done studying, you pick a ladder, which might be law or finance or, you know, 
industrial companies or whatever. And then you climb and you climb and you climb and you reach higher and higher and higher until you reach the age of pension and then you quit. My generation is not going to climb one ladder. We're going to climb it for a while and then we're going to switch to another ladder and maybe start from a lower level. And then we're going to switch to another ladder. ladder. We're going to probably climb five to ten ladders in our professional lives. And that being said, people from the past generation need to acclimatize to this new reality and being, you know, feeling okay with switching careers and feeling okay of switching to a lower level of the ladder and maybe reduce their paycheck, maybe being, you know, just feeling comfortable with not being the absolute authority just because they're older but being somebody who can contribute in other ways. So I think this is, goes both ways. It has to, has to do with companies being afraid to employ older people because they are not at home in the digital world or whatever, but also that people of age should feel humble towards the fact that they might have to step down a bit. So I think it goes both ways. Mm. To finalize, what do you think the world needs most at this time? Oh, oof. <laughs> oh, Jesus. At this time, I mean, we're at a point in time where so much really strange stuff is happening in politics and in uh, humanitarian problems and so forth. So it's hard not to just single out sanity, but that's not very constructive. <laughs> but I think if I would well. say something on a very sort of high, high, high level that the word needs more of, it's peace. And not just peace in terms of not war, but peace of mind. To be comfortable with a slower pace sometimes. Take a step back, reflect. And not rushing towards the next milestone, the next quarterly report, the next like. You know, just taking time to think things through and spending time discussing things and just indulging in opportunities and problems and not being too fast to judge, not reacting with aggression when somebody says something that you think is offensive or wrong. Because I think that people have a very short attention span and a very sort of low level of, what do you say, a low level of acceptance, I guess, nowadays. People are immediately going to criticize if you say something that you shouldn't have said. And I think that is, that is just hurting everyone. So, um, well, if I would call for something, it's moving towards a slightly slower pace of things. Mm. That'd be good for, for the world. Thank you, Henrik. It was really great talking to you. Thank you for sharing everything. To find out more about Henrik Evrell and his work, head to soon forever.co. That's right. Or even better, hook me up on Facebook and, and let's have a coffee. And that's what I want to say, I think, as a, as a closer to this discussion, that these kind of meetings that we're having right now is, is I think, also what the world needs, needs more of. Just people sitting together and talking about important stuff. Even if it's not, you know, recorded, I think this is just so good for, for everyone's just reflections about life and about what they do. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.